The IMG Roadmap is the only podcast dedicated to coaching international medical graduates and success blueprints for this unique pathway. I am Dr. Nina Loom, your host, a previous IMG turned hospital medicine physician, healthcare administrator, speaker, and coach. I empower, encourage, and equip you with actionable steps that you can take towards the residency position of your dreams. Hi, guys, and welcome to another episode of the IMG Robot Podcast. Today's episode is actually very different, but it's also very important. I get tons of questions from, you know, students that are in undergraduate programs here in the U.S. as F1 students, or they hold an F1 visa, but they're interested in going to medical school in the States. So this person will not be thought of as an IMG necessarily, but they are a foreign national that is interested in pursuing U.S. medical training. So the best thing I could do was invite a very dear friend of mine onto the podcast today. Her name is Dr. Ima Ibong. She'll tell us about herself, but I really want you guys to listen keenly because this is somebody that I know has been through this path and is currently an attending neurologist at University of Kentucky. And I know that she has tons of personal information that she can share with us. So Dr. Emma, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me. And hello, audience. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. Say hello, audience. (laughs) So (laughs) can you you tell us a little bit about you, sort of where you practice now, where you're from, and how you, maybe the steps of your training thus far, just like your CV in brief. Okay. So... My name is Dr. Ima Ebong. I'm originally from Nassau, Bahamas. So I went to university initially in Atlanta, Georgia for undergraduate education as an F1 student. And I continued my medical training at the University of Kentucky College of Medicine as an F1 international student, where I graduated in 2013. From 2013 to 2017, I was on a J1 visa pursuing my residency at the Jackson Memorial Hospital University of Miami Neurology Program. And I completed a fellowship there in clinical neurophysiology between 2017 and 2018. And then upon completion of that, I returned to the University of Kentucky as an attending physician in the Department of Neurology as a clinical neurophysiologist. So I've been there now for about a year and a half. So I've come full circle back to the institution where I did my medical school. Isn't that amazing? That is so awesome. Congratulations, by the way, because, you know, a lot of people listening may not know what your fellowship was in. In very simple terms, can you describe that to them? Yes. So I'm the type of neurologist that essentially reads brain waves and also examines muscles. So neurophysiology, in summary, I read what what I call EEGs, electroencephalographs. So for example, if someone has a seizure and I want to see if they're having a seizure, where in the brain the seizure is from, I will use what's known as an EEG machine to look at it. So I'll interpret those brain waveforms to see if a person is having seizures or not. And then in terms of muscle, I use which is what is called an electromyograph, where I study if a person has some disease of a muscle. So, but I also see patients with those diseases as well. Okay, thank you so much. That's so awesome. 
So really a lot of the, you know, the requests that I've got that really prompted me to call you and ask if you would be willing to do this episode with me was, I have students that want to know, how do we take, how do we go from being F1 undergrad students to being, to going to medical school in the state? So they don't want to go back to the Bahamas. They don't want to go back to Cameroon or Nigeria, but they're already here. But they feel like having a visa is like a roadblock instead of an opportunity. So can you walk us through what your process was like? Sure. So one thing I would say that it is a very complex path for international students who are already in university in the U.S. to go to medical school, but it's not impossible. And I'm proof that it's not impossible. What you would have to do is ensure that you are doing the same things as your American colleagues are doing in pre, in undergraduate or pre-med in terms of taking the same classes, making sure that you have the same opportunities. Many universities have pre-med programs where you can do a summer program or a summer camp in associated medical school. And I would encourage you to do that. That way you would get to know the faculty and staff at the medical school. So the point is that you don't want to do anything different from anyone else in the U.S. You want to make sure that you stay on the same path, that you have your pre-med advisor and tell your advisor exactly what it is that you want to do. Make sure that they know and are aware that you are an international student so they can also give you tips on funding your medical education, steer you towards universities that actually accept international medical students because many universities in the U.S. do not accept international students. So you have to ask these questions from day one and not wait until maybe your junior or senior year to to say, hey, I want to go to medical school. For me, my path was a little different. I didn't go directly from undergrad to medical school. I did undergrad and then I did two years of graduate school And then I actually went back home to work. But while I was working, I was studying diligently for the MCAT. And I didn't have anything except the MCAT study book. But I studied and I came to the U.S. to take the test. And once I got my scores, I made sure I applied to every single medical school that accepted international F1 students. And again, that can be an expensive process, but if you're passionate and willing to do it, then money should not be an obstacle. I know that's not the case for everyone, which is why I worked during that time. And I also had a very supportive father who helped me financially during that time as well to get me back to the U.S. to start medical school. Well, wow, thank you so much for opening up about that. I, you know, I, I'm your friend, but I didn't even know that you had gone back to, to Bahamas before coming back into school. So I think that was very, very vital information because um, I think sometimes some students may graduate and go home and feel like that's it. Like there's, you know, going to a U.S. school is out of the question. But you took your MCAT book and you went home with it and you kept studying and thankfully had family to support as well. And you were able to come back in and take the test. So you did talk about an advisor. So one thing that I, I'm not familiar with, because of course I didn't go to school here as far as medical school here. So how do people find advisors that actually know what the process is for F1 students? So if you go to medical school, and, and I'm assuming the audience, the target audience 
today are students who are in the U.S. for undergrad now or maybe graduate school. So when you go to college, when you declare a major, you are automatically assigned to an advisor. Sometimes that advisor isn't necessarily a pre-med advisor, but if your school has a pre-med track, most universities have a pre-med track, you will be paired with a pre-med advisor automatically. And that advisor is the one who guides you and tells you which classes you need to take to meet the pre-med requirements. So you will need so much biology, so much chemistry, so much organic chemistry, biochemistry, physics, and math courses. So they are the ones to ensure that you meet those requirements to even get considered as a candidate for medical school. So that's what I mean when I say an advisor. So if you're listening, you're in your freshman year or your sophomore year, you should have already met with your advisor. If you're listening and you're entering college in this coming fall, Make sure that if you have your major declared, I know some people don't declare a major early on, but if you have your major declared, let make sure that pre-med is on there so that early on you will be paired with your advisor. And this is universal across universities and colleges in the U.S. that I know of. All universities pair you with an advisor. And a pre-med advisor is just someone who makes sure that you get into medical school based on the classes that you have to take. Right. Another question that I know is going to come up in the minds of people listening would be, can you touch a little bit on financial aid options or what the options are for paying of paying medical school fees in the States? Do you know, you know, any data, anything that you want to share with us? So unfortunately for international students, you won't be eligible for government financial aid or federal student loans. You have to be a U.S. citizen to even be considered for those. There are private loans that you may be eligible for, and you should look into that. In my case, I had my family, my father supported me, so my medical school was paid for that way, but I realized that's not for for everyone. So you have to really think hard, how are you going to afford medical school? Many of the international students that I went to school with, they either financed their own education because they either worked or or their families financed it just like mine did, or they had private scholarships. But like I said, you know, there are no federal loans, which is the way majority of U.S. students pay for their medical education. I'm not sure the military option, the reason why I said I'm not sure is because usually I know people who are U.S. citizens would go into the military, but I think that you don't have to be a citizen to go into the military. I know of people from different countries who entered the military and then got citizenship that way. And if that's a path that you'd want to investigate, I'd suggest looking more into that. But I don't have any affiliation with any of the branches of the military. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And now let's move it, move it on to some other questions we've received in the past on this topic. When it comes to transitioning, so, you know, the person gets into medical school and then they have to be on a certain type of visa to attend medical school. What type of visa is that? Are there any limitations with that? And then what are the possible options for residency training and and beyond? So as with undergrad or any type of student, you will be on an F-1 visa. So I was on an F-1 visa As soon as I was accepted into medical school, 
I had to go to the U.S. Embassy back home in the Bahamas and apply for my visa. When you And just realize when you get accepted, that's not it. So when you go to the embassy, there are lots of things you have to take with you, including proof that you can finance your education. So even before you step foot into the U.S. to start school, you have to show the embassy that you're able to pay for it. So my dad had to show bank records and also a letter saying that he would be able to finance my education because it's a substantial amount of money, the cost of a U.S. medical um, education. So they want to make sure you can afford it. So you have to show that and then they'll approve your visa. And then once they approve your visa, then you can come over for school. Now for residency, most residencies nowadays provide what's called a J-1 visa. So if some of you are familiar, F-1, again, is a student visa. There are two types of work visas, an H-1B, which is for temporary work in the U.S., and then the J-1 visa, which is usually reserved for physician trainees or scientist trainees. And this is a special type of visa that allows you to work for a finite amount of time. And typically, you have to go back to your home country. So most People who are doing residency on a J-1 visa, they have to have the stamp in their passport that usually says they have to go home and um, perform what's called a J-1 waiver, go back home for two years, or they can do it in the U.S., which is what I'm doing right now. So after my residency, when I applied for a job uh, here at the University of Kentucky, I essentially agreed to work at the University of Kentucky and in rural parts of Kentucky on a waiver that would allow me to stay here after residency. And then in in exchange, I got the H-1B visa. Okay. All right. Thanks for going into so much detail on that, because I feel like that's also, it's going to help people plan, you know, plan ahead, so to speak. So another question for you, because, you know, on the podcast, we like to really get some inspiration from other people and would like to know, you know, when you applied, did you get people rejecting you because you were a non-U.S. citizen? Was that an issue? Was that not? How many places did you apply into? Can you walk us through that process? Yes. And I'm going to be honest. It was very stressful, but you know, one thing I've learned through the process is all you need is one yes. And in reality, I only had one yes. So backing up, I applied to every single U.S. program that accepted international students. And at the time, this was in 2008, so about 12 years ago when I was going through the process, it was thousands of dollars of uh, spent just on applications. I only got two interviews out of those dozens of places. I got two interviews. And then I was waitlisted both places. And for those of you who do not know what waitlisted means, it means that you haven't been accepted to medical school because the class is full. However, once people decide that they want to go elsewhere or drop out of the class, then they would go down the waitlist and accept more people until the class is full again. So I was waitlisted at both schools. I didn't find out that I was accepted to the University of Kentucky until June of 2009. And granted, school starts in August. So most people know they're accepted into medical school starting October, November, the year before school is about to start. I didn't find out until June. So I had two months essentially to pack up everything and move. 
I did, and then I eventually got rejected from the other school because their class was full and I and they didn't get to me on their wait list. So essentially, I only got accepted one place, and that's all I needed. And I thrived in medical school, so that to me that didn't mean anything just because I I only got into one place. I knew that there would be obstacles because I was an international student, and then also I was considered what. You know, looking back then as a non-traditional student, but nowadays many students don't go directly to medical school. Many students work or go to graduate school before they go to medical school. So I had these things stacked against me, but I didn't let that deter me. So, yeah, just one. You just need that one place. (laughs) Yeah, I really agree. You you really just need one place to accept you. And that goes all the way from getting into undergrad, getting into medical school, a master's program, residency, fellowship, you can't train at two places at one time. So really all you need is one opportunity. And then when you, when you get it, you maximize it and you make it work to your best interest by, you know, showing up, doing the right thing over and over again. And you produce very different results from other people around you. So yeah, I really appreciate you kind of being open to tell us about what, you know, what you would have considered then as a failure, which has now become a great strength and source of success for you. So can you give us some, do you, you know, do you have any stats on neurology? Like, are there people, are there a lot of people like you that maybe went, that maybe um, were F1 students and maybe later on became physicians in the States and then now practicing neurology? Is there, is there some data that you, you can share with us on that? What's your personal experience with it? No, I don't have any data specifically on neurology. I do have anecdotal data, medicine in general. There are so many like me who went to medical, who were international and went to medical school uh, in the U.S. University of Kentucky is known to be friendly to F1 students or international students. And every year, every class, there were a handful of people just like me who were international F1 students. Even currently, I know some of the students there are on an F1 visa so the thing is, you just have to look and see which universities are friendly towards students who will need a visa. Unfortunately, I, I don't even know if if those statistics are available. Maybe EF, was it EFCMG? Did I say that right? ECFMG, the education yes. for medical graduates, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. so they might have that, that information. Oh, and I know in my intro, you said I would be considered IMG per se, but I just have to say one thing. You're right. I did graduate from a U.S. medical school, but because I needed a J-1 visa, I was considered an IMG during residency. So if you don't change your visa status, like say you, you come into medical school as an F-1, and you remain an F1 until you graduate and you would need a J1 visa to work as a resident, then you would still be considered an IMG and have to go through the whole ECFMG process, uh, which I had to do. So just keep that in mind. Now I know people who came to medical school as an F1 and they may have gotten married to a U.S. citizen or for some some way got their status changed to a permanent resident or something like that, then they didn't have to go through the process to be a J-1 or or find a visa for residency training. 
Um, so it does happen. I mean, it does happen. And I know per- people personally who that happened to where they came in as one status and then their status changed while they were in school, which actually makes things a lot easier when you're looking for residency positions and also employment positions. Yeah. Well, thanks for shedding light on that. You're right. Because if a person is training on a J-1, then they will be considered international. So, wow, that was some good information. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Any other final words or advice that you'd have for, you know, anyone that's sort of where you were several years ago? Do you have any tips and tricks for them to take on? Yeah, so I just want to reiterate, it may be difficult, but it's not impossible to be an international student or an F1 student in a U.S. medical school. If it's something that you want to do, just exhaust all of your powers to do it. And remember, all you need is one. All you need is one yes. And if you don't hear enough, if you don't hear many no's, then you haven't been pushing hard. I've heard so many no's in my lifetime, more no's than I can count. And I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't hear all those no's. So just keep pushing. Absolutely. Don't let those no's hold you back, guys. Dr. Ivan, if anyone wants to connect with you, where can they find you? Any social media links or handles you want us to include on on the uh, show notes? Sure. You can find me on Twitter. Follow me at Ima Ebong, M-D. I-M-A-E-B-O-N-G-M-D. That's my uh, Twitter handle. And I post all things neurology, diversity in medicine. I even post some things for international students in medicine. So you can follow me there on Twitter. And then also you can look me up at University of Kentucky, Ima Abong, Department of Neurology on the department website. All right. All right. We'll definitely include all that information down below so you guys can follow her, check her out, ask pertinent questions. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Dr. Yvonne. We hope you have a nice rest of your day. All right. Thank you. And bye, everyone.